Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. What's up, you guys? Enough with the music. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Bringing you some Alfred North Whitehead today. Um, I'm excited about it. I, I guess there was a little bit of a delay in bringing it to you. So for those of you who remember, I was introduced to Alfred North Whitehead, uh, which is, you know, a really quite a famous philosopher and not you know, not a particularly old one, um, but it just went under my radar. I never heard of of Alfred North Whitehead having a deep interest in philosophy and religion. There's really no excuse for it, but just not somebody that I encountered until I read a a book on speculative physics and panpsychism uh, that we talked about with several episodes of the podcast. It's uh, uh, that's Peter Shirsted Hughes' uh, book, Modes of Sentience. We did several episodes on that, but two chapters in the book, I think it was chapter two and three, were all about Alfred North Whitehead. And I told you at the time that I was impressed with him, with the ideas that he brought. And I put him on my my Mount Everest. So I made that reference a few times that, you know, we're all from time to time um, taking measure of the kind of biggest influences um, in particular areas. So some people you know, it's with me and my friends is not uncommon for us to have this conversation with um, with bands, you know, the top five of all time. And so I did this um, kind of uh, the heads on on Mount Rushmore um, analogy with philosophers and thinkers. And um, when I after I read uh, Modes of Sentience, I was like, OK, Alfred North Whitehead is one of the faces on Rushmore. The only other time I've said that on the podcast was about uh, Bernardo Castrop. Uh, Bernardo Castrop, we did episodes on as well, but I haven't got into um, his writings very much yet. I've just heard, you know, interviews and podcasts and so forth, but I did pick one up. Um, it's called The Idea of the World, um, so that's going to be on the list. At some point, we're going to read Bernardo, and we'll talk about him more. Um, so it was just Whitehead and Bernardo Castrop that I've come across and uh, decided that they were worthy of Everest, or of Everest, of Rushmore, excuse me. Um, and so today we're going to talk a little bit more about um, Alfred North Whitehead. So I uh, bought an old copy of his book called uh, Process and Reality. Um, and I say old, it was like from the 50s, I think. It's just one of those beautiful old books that I have on my shelf. They're, it's delicate, it's old. I didn't really want to read it from the old version, so I bought a uh, paperback version so I've been reading that, and I feel better about it because I can uh, mark it up with highlighters and write notes in it, and don't feel don't feel bad about it. 
So this one may be a lengthy episode. There's some, um, well, there's lots of concepts and ideas. We're only going to touch on really, really high level in this episode, but, um, but they're confusing. And a lot of it has to do with language. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, because as, as a philosopher, um, Whitehead points out that language is the tool that they have, um, to express philosophy and, uh, like any good tool, you make modifications to it so that you can use it so you can apply that tool for other endeavors. And a lot of philosophers do that. They invent words. Um, Whitehead is no exception. We talked about that before. Uh, we will again today. But lots of other philosophers have as well, um, either redefining words or creating new ones um, because you're playing with concepts in philosophy. And uh, sometimes those concepts don't exist exactly, at least not precisely. So you have to invent a word to mean what you want it to mean because the word that means what you want it to mean doesn't exist. So we'll see some of that today as well. Really what this opening bit uh, with Whitehead is going to do, I mentioned it's just going to be really cursory in terms of what his um, thoughts and ideas are. Um, Whitehead is a a philosopher and a mathematician. So right in the same vein of uh, other philosophers that I admire um, quite a lot, people like... um, Leibniz and Spinoza. We'll talk a little bit about Spinoza Spinoza today. Um, But I think I admire those folks, not only for what their ideas were and the progress they made in philosophy, especially in ontology, which we're going to focus on a lot today, um, but also for their expertise in math and their their, um, sort of deep knowledge of mathematical concepts and their ability to use those concepts when they're talking about metaphysics and physics and all sorts of other things. Um, That's a weakness of mine, the math. So that's something I should remedy, really should. And maybe that's partly why I admire these guys so much, because they are experts in an area that I am not. Um, But in any case, this one is going to be Whitehead making an argument for the way in which he's going to make this argument. So it's kind of interesting. Where we're starting is, is Whitehead saying, look, I'm a philosopher, and philosophers do something that um, human beings do all the time, but they do it in a very formal way, and that is to create a model of the world that explains what we experience. We know scientists do that. That's what physics does. But this is also what philosophers do. They start tackling questions like, is there free will? And, uh, you know, um, you know, how do you, how do you uh, get an ought from an is? That's, the, that's David Hume's great question. Things like that. And then they're tasked with creating a model of thought or of reality that explains those things. And it's... Well, it's partly an art, and it's partly a science. Thinking is. Philosophy is. And so, there's a little bit of imagination that's involved. There's a little bit of speculation that's involved. And you can write that off. You can say, well, that's a flaw of philosophy. But it's not. It's a flaw of thinking. It exists in science just as much as it does in philosophy. What science does is propose. It's something called a hypothesis. I'm going to propose this is the way the world is. That's my model. Then I'm going to test it experimentally to find out if I'm right or wrong. So even in science, 
They're using speculation and imagination. They're saying, you know what, maybe it's something like this. Let's see if that's true. And this is exactly what Whitehead is saying that he's going to do. He's like, look, I'm going to make some arguments here that are going to be a little bit unusual. They're going to be a lot a bit unusual. And what I'm doing here is taking liberties. I'm being speculative. I'm using my imagination to come up with a model that will better explain the world and our experience than any other model we have from philosophy or science today. I'm not saying it's 100% correct. I'm not saying I'm sure of it. I am, I am speculating here that this is a way things might be. And if it's true, it's a far superior explanation to any that we have today. And so what he's going to do here, and what we're going to talk about today mainly, is Whitehead's justification for inventing a model of ontology. And just to I used that word twice already, so I'm going to define it for the audience if you don't know already. Ontology is a branch of thought, a branch of philosophy, that has to do with origins. It has to do with um, how we got here, how the cosmos got here, how the how the universe works, um, you know, uh, all of these deepest foundational questions about origins. This is something that we call ontology, put under that umbrella. And so what Whitehead is going to do is speculate about those sorts of things at the deepest level. How did things begin? How do, th how do things exist the way they do currently? How did we get there? Where are we going? How, how do we create an explanation, a model that accounts for everything we experience and is predictive in the same way that science is about what the future holds? And what he's going to do here is justify the use of his imagination to, to take incremental steps closer to the truth. And I'm just going to repeat again for those people who think that this is not a scientific way of going about it. It fucking is. If you think it's not, then you don't understand sci the scientific method at all. We propose a hypothesis that's educated or otherwise. That is a guess. It is entirely a figment of our imagination until it's proven by, by repeated experimentation. It is imagination. And that is what Whitehead is going to do today and exercise in imagination. Well, he's going to do a lot more of it as we get into these deeper episodes, but that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. So let me just begin this way. Whitehead's goal is to contribute to the progress of philosophy by formulating a speculative ontological model that is logically consistent, entirely coherent, and though not proven experimentally, provides a framework for understanding reality more completely than any model that has come before it. His scheme aims to go beyond modern scientific theories that provide explanations for and can predict how physical laws govern the material cosmos. By expanding the scheme to include mentality and consciousness also. So we're not just talking about matter and the physical laws. We're also talking about things that cannot be explained by physics. Mentation, as Bernardo calls it, or mentality and consciousness. So Whitehead's aim is to provide a model that explains not only the physical elements of the world, 
but those that aren't explained by physicality, in, in particular, our consciousness, our experience. Whitehead's scheme seeks to explain not merely the objects of our experience, but experience itself. He admits that this is merely a scheme and that it is speculative, but it holds tremendous explanatory power and may very well be the next stepping stone that moves our understanding of the world and ourselves forward. So I'll give you a quote from Whitehead here that, that speaks to this. It goes like this. All productive thought has proceeded either by the poetic insight of artists or by the imaginative elaboration of schemes of thought capable of utilizing uh, of, of utilization as logical premises. Progress is always a transcendence of what is obvious. Okay. So what he's saying here is, well, he said it very clearly, all productive thought, anything that, that constitutes progress in our thinking or understanding, anything new or novel, those things come from what he calls poetic insight of artists and our imagination. And that's entirely true. Every concept that's ever been thought up began in the space of our imagination or in the space of our, if you're an artist, you might call it um, inspiration, right? It's hard to explain that. It's hard to explain imagination using the laws of physics. It's hard to explain inspiration using the laws of physics. And yet, I don't think there's very, very many people that would disagree that those things exist. And something that Jordan Peterson says um, very like this, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but he says something like that the new wave of thought, the new zeitgeist, the new um, spirit of the age, that the way that culture changes and the scheme of our thinking changes as time goes on, that begins, he said that the, what does he say? He says that the artists are on the vanguard of that understanding, that people who are creative, people that are in touch with their, their unconscious, uh, the source of that inspiration, wherever these new ideas come from, those people are on the vanguard. They're at the very beginning of these new ideas that will soon permeate all of the rest of us. And Whitehead says exactly that. Whitehead also puts this idea of creativity at the very top of his ontological model. He calls it the creative advance of the universe. To, to Whitehead, that is the most fundamental aspect of reality. To Whitehead, that is God. Although he does use the word God to mean other things, um, creativity is definitely there at the very top, uh, or at the very base, you might say, of his ontology. So I'm going to give you a couple of words, not as many as I gave you when we did the uh, uh, modes of sentience lectures, but uh, a couple of words that are vocabulary words that we're going to hear today from Whitehead. So you have some idea of what they mean, and I'll try to help you out with that. But uh, one word that comes up is concretion or concrescence. And that, that word Whitehead is used, as far as I can tell, it means to make to be made manifest, to be made materially real. So there's something that you have to understand with um, 
any kind of ontology, that when we're talking about origins, there's always this intuition that if something were to begin, that it has to come from some place, right? There has to be a starting point. And that the starting point of creation is something that isn't materially manifest, right? Because creation, when we talk about that from a religious perspective, what we mean is material reality coming into existence. Well, it comes into existence from where or from what? Now, the from where or from what question indicates that there is a type of reality or a way of existing that isn't material, right? It's something else. There's some other place that isn't yet real, something that you might call potentiality. And so if something starts off as potential and is made real, it's actualized, that is what I think Whitehead means by concretion or concrescence. It's to be made manifest, to go from a state of potential into a state of actuality. So we're going to see this word uh, today. And he also uses these words, um, occasions and entities. And there are others, but these are two descriptions that Whitehead uses to talk about experience or the basic components of experience. And in Whitehead's world, in his mind, experiences aren't ever um, experienced in isolation. You know, they're always wrapped up in previous experiences or in potential future experiences. It's like one experience happened because of a bunch of others that happened before it, and you can't remove an experience from the context that made, that it arose from. So experiences seem to build on each other, and that's how they start off... Um, they start off as something called an actual entity. And that just means, well, another way of saying that is he's used as a drop of experience. And as those experiences accumulate, they become at different scales, different kind of levels of, of reality. And entities become occasions, and occasions become societies, and societies become nexus. He's got all these different words. We're not going to hear about that in detail today. But we are going to hear occasions and entities talked about. And you just have to understand that that means some type of experience or some constituent of experience. And then the creative advance we already talked about. That's what you might call God. I would call God. Um, Whitehead calls the creative advance something like that which makes experience possible. So whatever that is. So there's your vocabulary lessons we can we can jump in. All right, let's get into some whitehead, you guys. This first section I'm going to call Speculative Philosophy, Defense of Metaphysics. So why is it a defense of metaphysics? Like we already talked about, these are kind of an imaginary starting point, a propositional starting point that's entirely speculative, but may be true. And it, it starts like this. Speculative philosophy is the endeavor to frame a coherent, logical, necessary system of general ideas in terms of which every element of our experience can be interpreted. Okay, precisely. He's talking about making up a scheme, what he calls a scheme. You might call it a model. I think I like model better. But coming up with a model um, that can be used to understand all of the elements of our experience. 
and he's completely open about the idea that it's speculative what he's going to suggest. But he says a couple other things that are important. He says that the framework that he proposes is going to be coherent, logical, and necessary. So it's not, you know, something he pulls out of his ass that has no, you know, that's not sound or valid in any way. It's, it, it's quite the opposite. It might be made up, but it's logically coherent. It's, it's rational. You know, it, it doesn't contradict itself, that sort of thing. So there's some checks and balances involved. And it seems like Whitehead, is his goal here is to identify the patterns that underlie all experience. Because if there's something common behind all these various different types of experience, then you can imagine whatever that thing is that's common to all types of experience, well, that's significant, right? Because it's common to all types of experience. It's something that is fundamental, let's say, to experience in general. And that's more significant than just understanding one individual type of experience, right? If you have a whole bunch of different types of experience and you find what's common throughout them, then you've grasped something really significant about experience itself. And because our lives are nothing more than our experience, that we can't we don't have a window of the world or ourselves outside of our experience. The more we can l- know about experience in general, um, the more the more power that we that we have over over our experience of the world. All right, he's talking about coherence for a second. He says, coherence, as here employed, means that the fundamental ideas in terms of which the scheme is developed presuppose each other so that in isolation they are meaningless. All right, so this means that it's not internally contradictory, right? That what he's going to talk about doesn't have contradictions within, you know, the scheme that he's proposing. It's something like this. Everything according to this model is accounted for and nothing is left out and there are no internal contradictions. That's coherence, So this is a bit of a check and balance. It's like, look, I'm going to propose this idea, but it's going to be logical and it's going to be coherent. He says, it is presupposed that no entity can be conceived in complete abstraction from the system of the universe and that it is the business of speculative philosophy to exhibit this truth. This character is its coherence. Okay, so he says it is presupposed that no entity can be conceived in complete abstraction from the system. What does that mean? It means something like this, because any part of reality arose from reality and is already a part of the thing we're calling reality, it can't be, you can't reach in and grab that thing and rip it out of reality and look at it all on its own. You can't abstract it from this, this system that, it's, that it belongs to because the system, not only does it belong to the system, it's part of this complete system. The system is what gave rise to it. It came from the system and participates in the system. You can't just pull it out and say this is a thing all by itself. It's not. Now, physics has the same problem because physics studies the components of matter and energy. 
And there's been plenty of criticism uh, towards physics and science in general about this, that what you do in science is you pull an atom out of the system that it belongs to, which is an object, let's say, and it's also the, the, the cosmos as a whole, right? An atom is part of an object and is part of the cosmos. You rip it out and you look at it all by itself and you think you're understanding something about reality, but you're, you're not. You understand something about some abstraction that can never really be removed from the system it belongs to. So there's an issue here. Another thing that comes up in physics about this, and we're going to see this in a little bit, is that the observer, the scientist, the person that's running the experiments and making the observations, you're, you're also a part of the system that you're studying. You're studying the universe, of which you are a part. And one of the challenges in physics is, well, they've come to find out that you can't, you can't make an observation or run an experiment without impacting the system that you're trying to measure. So the very act of observing it changes it. And that's what science is trying to measure, right? Like, this is the problem, that you, you don't have access to the objective world. You only have access to your experience of it. And if your experience of it changes the system that, you, that you're a part of, then you can never get to the objective reality. Because every time you try, you change it. All right, Whitehead goes on. He says, there is an essence to the universe which forbids relationships beyond itself as a violation of its rationality. Speculative philosophy seeks that essence. Okay, so there is an essence to the universe that forbids relationships beyond itself. So what that means is that everything in the universe is understood relationally. That's what space and time is all about. That's what perspective is all about. That's what consciousness is all about. Right? It gives, it gives you the perspective of a subject so that everything else in the world looks like objects that are apart from you. And space and time seems like something that you move through. And that's how we're, we're related to each other. That's how we have knowledge of anything. It says, this is not that. You know, this is blue and that is black. This is tall and that is short. This is near and that is far. This is how we chop up the world to have a relationship with it so that it makes sense to us. In reality, we are all a part of this system that we call the universe. There is no chopping it up. It's all one thing. So this is a bit of an abstraction. And then, and then the question here about whether there is an essence to the universe, right? We talked about this being, you know, relational. Um, Ian McGilchrist uses the same language. Um, he, he talks about uh, relatedness and, and, uh, and music, and it's very much the same argument. Um, but what does it mean to have an essence? If the universe has an essence, what does that mean? It, it means that there's something about the universe that pervades all of the things in it. It's common. It's an essence. 
You know, what makes you, you is your essence. What makes a chair, a chair is its essence. What makes the universe, the universe is its essence. And it's something that you should be able to see like a thread that runs through everything in the universe. And if you can find that thing, then you can understand something fundamentally important about the universe. So it's something like what ties everything together in this scheme, in this model. Or what is true of everything all at once? That might be its essence. What is true of everything all at once? That might be the essence of the universe. If we could only find it. All right, Whitehead says, The difficulty has its seat in the empirical side of philosophy. All right, so for those people who don't know what empirical means, this is a word that has to do with science and the scientific method. It has to do with verifiable observation. So Whitehead is pointing out that there's difficulty in the empirical side of philosophy. Now, the question might be why. He says, our datum is the actual world, including ourselves. And this actual world spreads itself for observation in the guise of our immediate experience. The elucidation of immediate experience is the sole justification for any thought. Okay. All right, let's break this up a little bit. So right now he's talking about the empirical side of philosophy. How do we prove anything that we're proposing in philosophy? Because it has to be verifiable through observation. That's the scientific method, right? How, how, how do you do that? Especially when he says the datum, which is, you know, the data, what we're, what we're you know, um, examining, what we're trying to understand. It's, it's the whole system, the, the universe. That's what it is. And, and that system includes us. So what we're trying to understand is a system that includes ourselves, but it's greater than ourselves. It's what we participate in, the thing that we call the universe, the whole kit and caboodle. And he said that thing spreads itself out for observation um, in the guise of our immediate experience. And what he's pointing out to here is what we already hinted at earlier. You've got this thing in science that they call, it's called the observer effect. And it has to do with particle wave duality. If, if you know anything about quantum physics, one of the craziest things that, that we've learned in quantum physics is that on the quantum level, the smallest level of reality, that particles of matter and energy, they don't exist as particles, as little discrete units. In fact, they exist as probability waves. They sort of exist everywhere all at once with different probabilities. And only when they're observed does that wave function, as they call it, collapse. And this wave of probability collapses into some um, actual reality. So the wave then becomes a particle. And the moment you're not observing it anymore, the particle becomes a wave again. And so what's seemingly, what's real at the most fundamental level, objectively, is this sort of field of potential, or this field of probability. And the observer has an effect on the system. Each time you make an observation, you collapse that potentiality into some certain reality. So if what we're trying to understand is the world, and we're part of it, and in our act of observation of trying to understand the world changes it, how, do we ever, how are we ever going to know the truth? 
How are we ever going to know what's objectively there? And then Whitehead says that the elucidation of immediate experience, like trying to understand what our experience is, he says is the sole justification for thought. So you might think of that as, as thought is the interpretation and analysis of immediate experience. And this, this changes kind of a famous, um, a famous line from philosophy. Rene Descartes, uh, who said, I think, therefore I am. It changes this cogito. That, that's that little phrase, I think, therefore I am. It changes it to instead, I experience, therefore I am. Something like that. All right, Whitehead says, the true method of discovery is like the flight of an airplane. It starts from the ground of particular observation. It makes a flight in the thin air of imaginative generalization. And it again lands for renewed observation, rendered acute by rational interpretation. When the method of difference fails, factors which are constantly present may yet be observed under the influence of imaginative thought. Such thought supplies the differences which the direct observation lacks. It can throw light on elements in experience by comparison with what in imagination is inconsistent with them. The negative judgment is the peak of mentality. All right, so I know there's a whole bunch here. Let's, let's tear, tear into this one. So he explains this true method of discovery um, as something like the flight of an airplane. So you start off on the ground with a particular observation. And that's so you see something in the world, a very particular thing, how, you know, whatever it is that you're observing about it, how it, how it exists, what it's doing, that sort of thing. Then he says you take this flight into the air. And what he means by that is you think about it and you use your imagination. Um, you imagine what it, you know, what it might be, um, what it might mean. Um, you know, you can go beyond what you observe by thinking imaginatively. And that's what he's talking about. It's a process that we call abstraction, that we do all the time. Uh, like, like we talked about trying to find the essence of the universe. That would be some kind of an abstraction. So we start off with a particular observation. We're right on the ground, right there in, in, in you know, connection with reality. Then we go up into our imagination and we think about thoughts beyond just what we can observe. And then we come back down to our, to our actual you know, observation, back down to the ground again. And we can use this information we've gained from our imaginative exercise to try to make further sense of this experience. This is what he's talking about. We can kind of enhance our understanding or we can do this sort of trial and error in our imagination. And it's actually helpful to do that. Um, Jordan Peterson makes a, a similar um, a similar point when he says that, that we use our imagination. Uh, I don't know exactly how he words this, but he basically says that we can experiment with like what we might do or what we might say. Let's say if I'm trying to work up the courage to ask a girl out and I'm, I'm in middle school, I might run in my mind a thousand different ways of approaching her, a thousand different things that I might say to open up the, up the conversation. You know, I can actually run experiments in my mind and I can allow myself to imagine how that might go and 
decide which one of those routes is my best bet. And Jordan talks about that from an evolutionary perspective. He says, doing that, using your imagination, will allow you to do risky things that might, if you actually acted them out, they might go wrong and you might get hurt or die. You know, like how do I, how do I capture this pig that's been running around the, the village? It's been tearing up all the crops and we're all very hungry. How do we kill this pig? We could do this, we could do that, we could set a trap, we could do spears, we, whatever it is. And you think through these scenarios in your imagination and you find the one that, that might be the best, you think, the best approach. And you never would have been able to, to select this best approach if you didn't have the capacity for imagination. So there is something very powerful about imagination that can actually be implemented in the world. Now, people like to think that there's this huge disconnect between our imagination and reality. And what I've just told you is, as an example, are many ways in which imagination actually is applicable to reality and will help you in the real world. I think this is what Whitehead is trying to describe. And then he says, he talks about when the method of difference fails. So I want to t tell you what he means by that. It's like if you're trying to understand um, anything at all, one, one of the best ways to do that is to compare it to everything else. Right, so you can see how is this thing different from everything else? How is this different from that? How is it different from that? And that helps you figure out what it is. By figuring out all the things it's not, that leaves you with a, with a better understanding of what it actually is. This is what he means when he says when the method of difference fails. So if you can't detect what's different about something um, or what's different enough about something, you really don't have a way of understanding what it is. You know, it's like you're... you're you're creating categories in your mind and that allows you to make distinctions between things. And if you don't, if you can't, right, if you have some inability to find enough difference to understand something uh, properly, what you can do is exactly what, like he described with the airplane example, is you can use your imagination. And you can run that through your imagination. And then when you come back to the object itself, um, he, he says that... Um, that using your imagination can throw light on elements in experience by comparison with what in imagination is inconsistent with them. So you can, you can find ways of, of categorizing and making distinctions in things and understanding things by comparing it to how you imagine it. It's kind of interesting. Then he says, the success of the imaginative experiment is always to be tested by the applicability of, applicability of its results beyond the locus from which it originated. He says, philosophic generalization will, if derived from physics, find application in fields of experience beyond physics. It will enlighten observation in remote fields so that the general principle can be discerned, which in the absence of the imaginative generalization are obscured. All right, so there are a couple of things here. We talked in the, in the beginning about coherence and logic. And when we're proposing something speculative, it's important that it be logical and it, and it be coherent. Because if we don't have those strictures on our imagination, we can just think up whatever we want. It can be fantasy land and there's no way of, you know, making it, uh, of proving it or, or making, giving it any credence whatsoever. Here he's saying that 
that whatever you speculate has to be tested uh, to see if it's applicable, to see if it actually works. So this is something very much like the scientific method of experimentation. So you come up with a philosophical idea, and it, it seems logical and coherent. What you want to do next is see if it applies. Does it work in the world? And if it does work in the world, does it work in other instances? Can you take this... Can you take this thing that you've abstracted, that you've generalized, and can you find applications beyond this one instance? Because if you can, that's more and more evidence of its validity. So Jordan Peterson will talk about this where he says, he says if you have some uh, fact and you start seeing it again in other unrelated areas, the more you see that, he, he calls that levels of analysis, the more you see that, the more confident you can be that it's something important. It's something deep that, that it not only applies to this one particular instance, it's so deep you can see it in lots of unrelated things too, right? And then that shows you that there's something deeply significant about that at some deep, deep level of reality because it, because it, sh it shows up in all these unrelated places. So this is a silly example, but if you've learned, let's say at some point, that atoms exist, from a scientific perspective, you know, you've, you've, you've somehow figured out there's molecules of oxygen and carbon, you know, carbon dioxide in the air, let's say. And then you find out, um, or, they, or then you speculate that maybe those atoms also, they don't just make up the air, they make up everything else. And then you test it and you find out, shit, there's atoms in my body, there's atoms in, you know, the earth, there's atoms everywhere. So then you can see how this atomic theory is not just an interesting fact about air, but it's something that deeply underlies all of matter. So that's a generalization that, that turns out to be applicable in all these other areas. So that's how you know atomic theory is, is pointing you to some deep, deep truth because it doesn't, doesn't just explain air. It explains everything that's made of matter. All right, then Whitehead says, thus the first requisite is to proceed by the method of generalization. And the test of success is application beyond the immediate origin. Okay, so you, you make some observation about the world. You can take some generalization out, like maybe you've, you've come up with what you think is the essence of the universe. That's your generalization. Then you go and you look for it on all the different places in the universe. You look for it at all the different levels you can and see if you see it. And if you do, that's more and more proof that you're on the right track. He says, philosophic generalization is the utilization of specific notions applying to a restricted group of facts for the divination of the generic notions from, from which, uh, excuse me, which apply to all facts. All right, so I think divination is an interesting word here, but that just means to predict the future, to see the future. So he's saying... What you, you find something that's true in a particular narrow area of facts. And then you look to see if it, if it applies to all facts. Because see, that's how you find the essence of something. If it applies to all facts, then it's the essence of facts. It's what we, what we might call truth or something like that. It's an abstraction. But you see that abstraction because it applies to all facts is more significant. It's more valuable to have this this essence of facts than it is to have any one fact. It's this meta fact. It's this higher level thing that tells you something deep and, and, 
important about every fact that will ever be. So that's that's this philosophic generalization, this you know this abstraction that he's talking about. Then he says the second condition for its success, or for the success of imagine, imaginative construction, as he calls it, is unflinching pursuit of coherence and logical perfection. See, it's not good enough to have something that you see in one place and then also start seeing in others. That gives you. That gives you evidence that you're maybe on to something. But your scheme, your model that you're coming up with has to also be coherent and logical. Can't be internally contradictory. Can't be incomplete. So you have these checks and balances with your speculation. Then he says, the history of mathematics exhibits the generalization of special notions observed in particular instances. In any branches of mathematics, the notions presuppose each other. It is, it is remarkable that branches of mathematics developed under the pure imaginative impulse finally receive their application. Then he gives examples. He says conic sections, which is a, which is a mathematical concept, had to wait for 1,800 years. And he says in more recent years... The theory of probability, the theory of tensors, the theory of matrices are all cases in point. All right, so what he's saying here is he's using this example of math to kind of give you an idea about this generalization uh, notion that we're talking about. So math is something like the universe. It's a, com- it's a closed system. It's complete, self-contained. All the rules in math apply to all the concepts in math. They're all kind of um, cross-referenced, you know, with each other, and it's all completely logical. Um, in fact, that's what the system of mathematics kind of is: is a system of logic, and uh, and so it's something like what he's trying to describe. And what he's saying here is that mathematics or mathematicians they will speculate about things in math that are coherent and logical, but are unproven. So he says that they use pure imaginative impulse to create new mathematical ideas. And he gives an example when he starts talking about conic sections. Now, this is what's interesting. He says that this idea of conic sections was invented, and it took 1,800 years after that idea was invented before mathematicians realized its applicability. Like, oh, this, um, this, this mathematical idea that was completely made up 1,800 years ago from somebody's imagination, we now realize is 100% correct and can be used in all these ways. And the same thing's true, he says, with the theory of probability, with the theory of tensors, and the theory of matrices. All of these ideas were invented. They were pulled from someone's imagination. They're, they're coherent and logical. They fit into the mathematical system, but they're unproven. And then after, after sufficient time, when we become sophisticated enough in our knowledge and in our, in our mathematical concepts, then we can apply them, and they turn out to be true. And this is, this is, uh, Spinoza, this is uh, Whitehead's way of saying that we can't write off these sp- speculative, imaginative ideas. Because in, in areas like mathematics, which is a no-bullshit kind of field... 
imaginative ideas have turned out to be revolutionary. So speculative models derived imaginatively prove to be legitimate and valid. Retrospectively, that's amazing. And then he says, the requirement of coherence is the great preservative of rationalistic sanity. Incoherence is the arbitrary disconnection of first principles. In modern philosophy, Descartes' two kinds of substance, corporeal and mental, illustrate incoherence. There is in Descartes' philosophy no reason why there should not be one substance world, a one substance world. So here again, he's just saying we can we can come up, we can pull any idea we want out of our hat, but it has to remain logical and coherent. Otherwise, we're just going to wander off into the wild world of insanity. We have to ca- counteract or test any of our imaginative theories against the actual world. And if we and if we insist that we move forward with something that isn't coherent, that doesn't correspond to the world, then we're going to end up making a mistake like Descartes made. So Descartes, the guy that said, I think, therefore I am, he also said that the world is made up of two types of substances, the material and the mental, right? The spiritual and the physical. This is a dualism, like, like something we're pretty familiar with from, from religion, you know, body and spirit, body and soul. This is what he, he thought, but he just conceptualized body as, the, as matter and soul as mind, and what Whitehead is saying is there's absolutely no reason in all of the rest of the model that Descartes brings to the table why there should be two substances instead of one. You just, you just decided there are two, and that, that, that was a mistake. And that's, that, that's something that he should have noticed because it was incoherent with the, with the model that he brought forward. So this is how the checks and balances will work as we imagine and speculate towards some new truth. And that brings us to the next section, which I call Spinoza. Okay, Whitehead says, The attraction of Spinoza's philosophy lies in its modification of Descartes' position into greater coherence. He starts with one substance and considers its essential attributes and individualized modes. He says a multiplicity of modes is a fixed requisite if the scheme is to retain any direct relevance to the many occasions in the experienced world. All right, so Spinoza says there's one substance, right where Descartes says there are two. Whitehead thinks this is, a, this is a, an improvement because it avoids this problem of incoherence. The way that Spinoza gets around the fact that the world seems to have all kinds of variety to it and, and reconcile that with the idea that there's only one substance in the world is to say that that one substance has attributes and modes. You know, it's like, um, well, you might say that uh, H2O has a mode that's water and a mode that's ice and a mode that's um, gas, right? That, that's something like that, water vapor. So you can have variety, even though it's just one substance. So this is how Spinoza has modified Descartes' model to preserve coherence. We have one substance, because why would we have more than one? Explain that to me. 
And we can still begin with one substance and see from that what we see in the world around us, all this multiplicity around us. And so because this one substance... Um, Because the idea that this one substance uh, would would have to correspond to a variety of experiences in the world, um, Spinoza's limit is is you know, he he calls it a fixed requisite, but he so he has no choice but to propose that the one substance has different modes and and, and attributes. So it's kind of like a check and balance, but it's also a way of keeping the theory from going off the rails. Whitehead goes on, he says, the philosophy of organism, which is another word for his philosophy, um, it's sometimes called process philosophy or philosophy of organism. So he, he says, the philosophy of organism is closely allied to Spinoza's scheme of thought, but it differs so far as the morphological description is replaced by description of dynamic process. He says, also Spinoza's modes become the sheer actualities. So this is a couple of things that Whitehead says he diverges from Spinoza on. But the most fundamental one is what he says first. He says it differs so far as the morphological description is replaced by a dynamic process. What does he mean by this? So Spinoza thinks that the one substance is what something that he calls God or nature. That's what Spinoza said. So for Spinoza, this one substance... It, it has a form, it, maybe it has a static form. It's not something that he sees as um, changing. It's something that he sees as eternal and constant. And, and Whitehead says, nah, I don't know about that. I think this thing that Spinoza thinks is static and constant and has a particular form, I think it's dynamic. I think it's moving and changing and transforming all the time. So Whitehead modifies Spinoza's God or creative advance idea by conceptualizing it as something transforming, which, like we talked about a minute ago with uh, the, the different um, attributes and uh, modes of the one substance, it corresponds to the variety that we see in the world. Now, if the thing behind reality is not a static form, but a changing, transforming one, then you would expect all of the things in the world to be transforming because they come from this, this origin, this source that's also transforming, right? So this is again, another way that the checks and balances that the, that the idea that this speculation has to remain logical and coherent steers the progress of this theory. Now what we see in the world around us, um, well, we see things like, like entropy, time, adaptation, evolution. We see all these things happening. And what they are, I mean, if you, if you look at the topic of physics, um, entropy is part of it. Entropy is the idea that energy is always spreading out, um, getting further and further away from each other. Things are always breaking down. Um, that's a constant process of change that happens at the fundamental level of matter and energy all the time. And then there's time, which is always moving in a forward direction. Things are always moving temporally from, from 
one place, you know, from the present to the future. That's a constant process of change. And human beings and animals, biological life, every system that exists in, in, in the world and in the cosmos, the formation of galaxies and stars, black holes, you know, biological evolution, all of that stuff is a constant state of motion and change and transformation. So everything we see in our experience is like that. And if that's true, then it must be the case that what causes all of this is also dynamic. And it's not just that. It's Whitehead says that it's a dynamic process. And this, I think, is the absolute stick of dynamite in Whitehead's philosophy. He takes Spinoza's starting point and says that the, that the one substance that everything is made from, that, that the cosmos and consciousness and all of it, it comes from, is something like God. It's something that's eternal and static. And, and Whitehead says, no, not only is it not static, it's not, it's not an entity. It's a process. So that's an entirely different way of conceptualizing a deity or the origin of things. It's not a, it's not a, uh, a formula, a mathematical you know, formula from physics that you can write down that never changes, you know, like Schrodinger's a, a, a equation. It's not that. It's not a, it's not a symbol like a, like a god that, that you can say is an entity with a personality and intentions. No, it's not that. It's something that's always changing, and it's something that requires something like a back and forth. It's a process. It's, it's, it's always changing, but it's always changing because it's part of a process. And that's disembodied. That's, it's hard to imagine that idea of God as a moral agent or as a or as anything other than a creator. I mean, we think about God in lots of ways. I think those are the two main ways, as some moral order and as the origin of things, you know, as a creator and as the creator of the moral order. And, and there's ways in which our normal understanding of the moral order goes out the window when you consider God to be a process. Now, I, I don't want to throw that away entirely because I, I don't think that's entirely true, um, but it does... It does limit the understanding of what God is. You know, the origin of, of existence, of experience, is a dynamic process. And that does not fit the mold of any religious tradition that I can think of, apart from maybe Vedanta Hinduism. Maybe Taoism, actually. All right, Whitehead says, The coherence which the system seeks to preserve is the discovery that the concrescence of any one actual entity involves the other actual entities among its components. In this way, the obvious solidarity of the world receives its explanation. All right, so this is where we're getting into some of the vo vocabulary words. This little paragraph is one of the hardest ones to understand that we've, we've read already, but it's one of the most important if you're trying to understand Whitehead. So let me tear this one up for you. He says, the coherence which the system seeks to preserve is the discovery that the concrescence of any one actual entity involves the other actual entities among its components. What does all that mean? Okay, concrescence is this idea of 
something being made manifest, right? So it's the discovery that this process of manifestation of any actual entity, and remember, that's a component of experience, a drop of experience. So for an experience to be made real, that involves other experiences that make it up. This is hard to understand, but what it means is that experience is just like the universe. It's self-contained. You know, all experience is, is wrapped up with all other experiences. And I'll give you one example that might help to il illustrate this. You're trying to understand that any experience is made up of other experiences. And that no new experience is possible without bringing that baggage along with it of, of prior experience. Imagine this. You can imagine that having an, an experience of loss, like the first time you ever have that experience, this emotional experience of loss, that's not possible unless you had a prior experience of attachment. So this experience of loss is nested inside of this exp experience of attachment that happened first, right? You don't experience loss unless you first had this, this experience of attachment. Otherwise, you're not losing anything because you're not attached to anything. And then you can't have the experience of attachment without having the experience of being a self, you know, something that can have things to be attached to, right? So all of these experiences are nested within each other and they aren't possible without the, the experiences that came before them. And you can see the same thing applying biologically if you can say that, you know, species evolve and a new species can't evolve without the prior species that existed before. So every, you know, new biological manifestation is nested in all of the other biological manifestations that came before it. So experience affects other experience. It's one closed system. So we have this way of understanding our experience as this one substance that's connected and interrelated with all other experience. And that symbol is exactly identical to the image we have of the cosmos. We have this system, closed system of space and time where energy isn't created or destroyed. It's only transforming, right? No, no new energy is coming in. No you know, energy is being lost. It's all self-contained, you know? So our world of experience and the world of, of the cosmos is something like mirror images of each other, this self-contained system. And this, that's what he means when he says, in this way, the obvious solidarity of the world receives its explanation. The world seems to be one thing, right? It's got a single origin. That's something we call the Big Bang. The entire cosmos came from the same place, and it's all made of the same stuff, matter and energy or quantum waves or however you want to understand that. So yes, of course, the cosmos is one thing in that way, just, just like our experience is one thing. All right, then he says... In all philosophical theory, there is an ultimate, which is actual in virtue of its accidents. It is only capable of characterization through its embodiments, and apart from these is devoid of actuality. All right, let me stop there. There's more to this, but let me stop there, because that first sentence is a doozy already. 
He says in all philosophic theory, there is an ultimate. Okay, so we can easily think about the ultimate, the greatest thing that can be conceived as something like God or something like whatever it is that started the process of reality into existence. Or if, if the process of reality is eternal, which I think it is, then it's, then it's the process itself that's the, that's the ultimate. Like nothing higher can be conceived. In every system of philosophy, whether we're talking about morals and ethics, whether we're talking about theories of knowledge, theories of mind, ontology, every philosophical theory has something that is conceived of as the ultimate. But it's more than that. He says every theory has an ultimate, which is actual in virtue of its accidents. What in the Sam hell does he mean by that? That it's actual in virtue of its accidents. I think that means something like this, that it has existence through those entities that exist because of it. It presupposes a, a pre-existence or a reality outside of actuality. I know that's, that's, that's not any clearer. Let me put it this way. When he says that whatever is conceived of as the ultimate is made actual, so is made real, what that means is that there's a way it exists before it's real. There's a way it exists before it's actual. And that's something that we might call potential. And here's the hardest thing for modern people to understand, is that to say something is potential does not mean that it's not real. There's lots of things that aren't actual, that are very, very real. In fact, the, mo most, the most important things are not physically real. You can say that about your consciousness. There's no physical laws that explain consciousness. It's not a physical thing, but I think we would agree it's the most important part of reality. It's certainly the most important part of our reality. It's the only way the universe knows itself. It's pretty goddamn important. So there's a way in which things exist before they're actual. It's a pre-existence something that I might call unconscious or potential. Those are great ways of understanding what we're talking about here. And things move from this sort of platonic world of forms where things are potential. You know, Jung would call them archetypal. Then they have expression in the world. They become actual. They become materially real. And, then, and so what, what Whitehead is saying here is that you have these potential things that become manifested in the world. They, they have concrescence, right? They become materially real. They become actual, as he calls it. And as soon as they become actual, what they've done is they've given reality to this pre-actual you know, pre thing, this potential thing that gave rise to, to it. So if I say, well, how do I say this? If I say that, Oh boy, there's there's not a great way of giving you an example without a, that doesn't require a bunch of explanation. But let's take a, an example of something uh, from consciousness. So there's there's something that philosophers call qualia, which are qual the qualitative parts of our experience that we can't explain from physics. So if I say that I'm in pain, pain is not something that physics can speak to. It can talk about, you know, um, what happens in your biology when you're wounded. It can talk about chemicals and electrical impulses in your brain and nervous system. But it cannot explain the experience of pain. Another thing that it can't explain are anything qualitative, like the way things sound or feel or taste or look. 
Color is a good example. We use this from time to time. So you can say this, something like this. There is green. And you can close your eyes and you can imagine what green looks like. And you can see that in your mind's eye. So green exists in your mind's eye as something potential. It doesn't exist in the world, it just exists in your imagination. But then the moment grass exists, let's say, you can open up your eyes and look at the grass and see that there is an actual thing there that is green. What Whitehead is saying is something like this. The moment the grass exists and there's something physically green that, that exists as an as a embodiment of this potential thing that, you could, that only existed in your mind a moment ago, the fact that the grass exists somehow makes this idea of green exist. This idea of green that only existed in my imagination that didn't have any actual reality. It, it has reality now because I can see an example of it right there. Right there at my feet in the grass. So there's a way in which the actual things that are made real in the world, that, that have concrescence in the world, that they, that they give expression to or they give reality to something that exists some other way in this in this potential sort of a way so this is this is kind of the, what we want to think about it's something like jung's idea of archetypes it's some it's something like um, what kant says when he talks about things in themselves lots of philosophers have talked about this sort of idea but you can think about it you know think about it with a dichotomy between potentiality and actuality and understand that Whitehead and Spinoza and, and people like myself believe that there is reality to, to what we call potentiality, even though it's not real, even though it's not manifest in the world of matter and physics, it's still real in some other way, and it can become real in a physical way. And I mean, a, uh, a good way of thinking about that might be, might be to say that you have some, let's say, some character quality that you admire. And you want to have it for yourself. Like, um, you see, I, I use this example many times, but maybe you see somebody that that acts generously, and, you, and it may, has an impact on you. You're like, man, I, I really like that. I would love to be generous myself. I'd, I'd love to do that. So you have this idea that you might be generous, and you might be, um, you know, a paragon of of some sort of morality that feels good. And, and, you know, there's a reason why you want to propagate it into the world. You have this idea that you might be a generous human being. Well, that's a potential. And the moment you put rubber to the road and say, I'm going to start changing my behavior to actually be this man that I, that I wish I could be, then that potential idea becomes real. And you become the thing that makes it real. There's something like that, if that helps in the... In the, uh, in the um, explanation here. All right, he says it's only capable of characterization through its embodiments, right? So I can only understand it and explain it, this abstract general, generalization, like, like green, like, let's say, by, by looking at these actual instances of green. And that's how I'm going to be able to understand it. Apart from that, they're devoid of actuality. By that, he means material existence, material reality. All right, then he goes on. He says, in the philosophy of organism, 
this ultimate is termed creativity. So God, according to Whitehead, is creativity. He says, and God is, is its primordial accident. So this is what I meant when I said that, um, that Whitehead uses this word cre- creativity or creative advance in the way that I would use the word God. He says something strange here. He says that this creative advance is this abstract idea like green. And God is its, its, its physical embodiment. So you can imagine if God was a being that existed the way Spinoza believed or the way that uh, you know traditional religious people believe as some creative entity, that it would be the thing that makes creativity real. It would be, it would be the grass that makes the green real. God, the existence of some actual God. So I don't know if this is necessarily a physical existence. Maybe we can still say it's a spiritual existence, whatever that might mean. But the fact that God exists um, is evidence that the creative advance exists. Just like the fact that grass exists is evidence that green exists, even though physics can't tell you that green exists. All right, he says, in monistic philosophies, um, just to explain that, monistic philosophies just means uh, philosophies that believe in this idea of one substance. In monistic philosophies, the ultimate is God, who is also termed the absolute in such monistic schemes, the ultimate is illegitimately allowed a final, imminent reality, beyond that ascribed to any of its accidents. All right, so this is actually, it's hard to understand, but it's actually very important. Whitehead is saying, where all of these other monistic philosophies go wrong, and where Whitehead's philosophy is an improvement, is that it doesn't believe that the ultimate, whatever this is, God or creativity or whatever you want to call it, this, this abstraction that's the essence of the universe, whatever that is, doesn't have an imminent reality. It doesn't stand on its own as, it, as an imminent reality. He said it doesn't have imminent reality beyond its accidents. And remember, its accidents are like the, the things that exist, that, that give evidence that it exists, the grass to green. So in this case, all of the cosmos, material reality, energy, and time and space, and all of that, that exists as as evidence that God exists. Something like that. But here's where it gets interesting. He says that it God, or the ultimate, doesn't exist by itself. It only exists with its accidents. So God only exists with the actual, so you can imagine God is the potential part. It only exists alongside its actual manifestations, right? God requires that it have expression in the world. And God doesn't even exist without its accompanying expressions. So Whitehead is going to call them accidents, but you, you understand he's talking about, you know, what, what grass is to the abstraction green, you know, our experience in the cosmos are a part of this greater reality that he calls God. And this, I think, is what's, is what's key to understanding process. So what reality is, what experience is, is something like a process between the absolute, whatever that is, whatever objective reality is, whatever God is, whatever the origin of things are, whatever that might be, between that thing and what it gives rise to. 
which is the material cosmos, which is our experience of the cosmos, which is consciousness and everything that exists, all the whole kit and caboodle. There's something going on between the absolute and reality, you know, the, the material world. That's a process, something like a back and forth process between these two sides of one whole. It's not that God exists outside of the universe and created it. It's that God and the universe created each other and are part of one system that requires one another. They're one thing. And that means something I've said many times. It means something very weird. It means that you and I and everything else is God. That brings me to my next section, which is called Propositions, Truth, Interpretation. All right, why it starts like this. Every proposition proposing a fact must propose the general character of the universe required for that fact. There are no self-sustained facts floating in non-entity. It is impossible to tear a proposition from its systematic context in the actual world. A proposition can embody partial truth. It does not refer to the universe in all its detail. All right, so this is confusing, but there's some interesting stuff here. He says, every proposition, uh, every, every proposed fact about anything in particular has to be pointing to some general fact that's true of everything. So as soon as you find something to be true, if it is actually true, it's based on something that's true beyond that one fact, but true to everything else, right? So um, if it's true that, uh, if it's, I don't know if this is a strange example or not, but if it's true that um, uh, atoms can bond together to create uh, water, you know, um, hydrogen and oxygen can, can bond together to create water. If that's possible, then it's also possible that other elements can bind together to become other substances, so you get something like that. There's some If you find something that's absolutely true about one thing, because that one thing is part of the system we call the universe, it must be true of all things. And, and he makes that point by saying there are no self-sustained facts floating in non-entity, that all facts are true of the system. There's only one substance, there's only one system, there's only one cosmos. And anything that's true of anything is true of all, all things because it is one thing. Then he says, the truth itself is nothing else than how the composite natures of the actualities of the world obtain representation in the divine nature. Such representations compose the consequent nature of God, which evolves in its relationship to the evolving world. All right, so I know that's hard to understand on the surface, but this one is really good too. He says, The truth itself is nothing else than how the composite natures of the actualities of the world obtain representation in the divine nature. What the fuck does that mean? He's saying that everything that exists in the world finds representation in the divine nature. And then he says that such representations evolve in its relation to the evolving world. So, the things that exist in the world find some representation in the divine nature. That's the one substance. That's what everything is made of, what, what, what allows existence to, 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 to be. 
So you have things in the world that that are represented by what you might call God. I, I get this image in my head of Genesis where God shapes Adam out of clay um, and then breathes life into it. It's like it's like well, it's like Adam is made of God in some way, and that's being represented in the divine nature. But then he says that it evolves in its relationship to the world. And so this is something interesting. This, this goes back to this idea of process. When I said earlier that God requires the cosmos and the cosmos requires God, that they're actually one thing, what reality seems to be then is this process back and forth between these two things, God and the cosmos. Now, if you believe what uh, Dr. Shirsted Hughes believes, I mean, he's the guy that introduced me to Whitehead, that that the one substance that uh, Whitehead is, is proposing is actually something like what we would call sentience, you know, whatever it is that allows us to, to be conscious, to be conscious, rather. Then what you have is God as, well, let's just say sentience. And you have the material cosmos as representations of that sentience. Really what you have is con- consciousness on one side and consciousness on the other. And, and, and this process of back and forth between them is what we call experience. We also call it self-consciousness, by the way. That's the thing that we imagine ourselves to be. But there's some idea, and I've called this the being generator when I tried to describe this before. What you have here is God acting on the world, and the world acting back on God. And each each action is is transformative. Each action changes the other. You know, God creates the world and the world creates God, and it's a constant process of transformation back and forth, back and forth. And this to me is the best way that I've been able to understand this idea of process. It also helps me understand how God and reality can be one thing. Because well, what creates the world and the world itself don't seem like they can possibly be one thing. But when you imagine that the thing that exists is not the world or God, but it, but it's something that is actually a process in between them. It, it incorporates both God and the world. And, it, and they both participate in this process. It's the process that we can abstract even higher than God. And maybe that's that maybe that was the uh, impetus for for Whitehead to propose uh, what he calls the creative advance as something even above God. You know, this process is something that includes or incorporates both God and the cosmos. And that that is what we call experience. And that's all we know. That's all we know of the world and ourselves. It also explains that dynamic, transformative process. It explains how, why we mature. It explains time. It explains entropy. It explains all of that. All right, he says, Whenever we attempt to express the matter of immediate experience, we find that its understanding leads us beyond itself, to its contemporaries, to its past, to its future, and to the universals in terms of which its definiteness is exhibited. But such universals embody the potential of other facts. Thus the understanding of the immediate experience requires its interpretation as an item in the world 
with some systematic relation to it. All right, so that's another mouthful from, from Whitehead. He's saying that when we consider our experience, just our immediate experience, uh, again, that's all we know about ourselves in the world is what we're experiencing, you know, and, and uh, he said if you understand that, if you examine that, your immediate experience, what you're going to find is that your immediate experience can't be separated from the experiences you've had before, from the other things that are, you're experiencing right now, and for, potentially for what experiences you're going to have in the future, that they're all tied together. They're also tied together with what he calls universals, and those are those abstractions, those threads that tie everything together. You know, the essence of the universe and uh, all the different ways in which that manifests itself in, in the cosmos. But if you have some abstraction, you know, some universal, um, that's something that will apply to other experiences, not just the experience you're having, right? That's what makes it a generalization, is it applies to other things. So it, it's going to tie not only your experience to the, those you've had before and those you'll have in the future, but it ties your experience to all the other experiences that are happening or have ever happened. And so, really, experience is something like one big thing. And that's very strange. It's like, imagine if you could experience the experience of all the other people in the world right now. Imagine how completely overwhelming that might be. Now, imagine you can include with that experience all of the experiences that have ever happened in the past from any human being that's ever lived and all the experiences that will ever happen to any human being in the future. And imagine experiencing them all at once. Now let's take it a step deeper. Let's imagine that experiences doesn't apply just to human beings, but it applies to animals and plants and uh, you know fungi and bacteria and viruses. Imagine that experience also applies to atoms and molecules and uh, Electrons and photons and quarks and gluons and all these things have some type of experience. Imagine the same thing with stars and planets and galaxies. Maybe they can feel gravity. Maybe they can, you know, sense the pull of, of their moons against them. Maybe, you know, maybe the electrons can feel each time they jump up and down in orbital. Imagine there's experience going on at all these levels. Now imagine you experience that too. And not just the, not just what's happening now, but all the experiences ever happened, ever and ever will happen. Imagine. It dwarfs you so quickly. It's like the largest tidal wave you can imagine. It swallows you up like the, like the, like the dragon of chaos, you know? There's no way that that experience has any meaning when it all comes flooding at you at once. And that the reason I give you that thought um, experiment is because well, because this next line, he says, he says, thus the understanding of immediate experience requires its interpretation as an item in the, in the world with some systematic relation to it. So you have to be able to interpret experience. You have to be able to filter experience or else it has no meaning. It's too much. It's just too much. So there's some level of interpretation that's involved in making things meaningful or making experience possible. There's some sort of conscious interpretation that's required to experience anything at all. Some people say uh, there's a 
philosopher named Bergson that talked about consciousness itself as being a reducing valve, something that kind of dials back the flow of all that experience so that we can so that we can have some manageable level of experience, something that can be interpreted and made meaningful. And, uh, you know, a lot of, of other people talk about, you know, f- concepts from physics that do the same thing. Maybe space and time are also filters for, for experience. Maybe they're ways of interpreting experience so that it makes sense. Maybe entanglement is some part of that. And Whitehead says, our experience is a complex of failure and success in the enterprise of interpretation. If we desire a record of uninterpreted experience, we must ask a stone to record its autobiography. Interpretation is the product of the vagueness of consciousness. Elements Elements which shine with immediate distinctness in some circumstances retire into shadow in other circumstances and into black darkness in other occasions. And yet all occasions proclaim themselves actualities, demanding a unity of interpretation. All right, so there's a paradox built into this paragraph where he said you have to be able to interpret experience. You have to put some filter and context to it, or it doesn't exactly exist. And it's not possible to see everything, to interpret everything the same, because there's just too, there's an infinite, there's an infinite amount of experience. And yet, reality demands what he says, what he calls a unity of interpretation, right? The, the universe is one thing. There should be a one way of interpreting it. And that doesn't seem to be the case. There's a paradox built into this. And he, the reason for that, he, he says, is the vagueness of consciousness. There is no experience that's not interpreted. That's what he's saying. Like he said, if you want un- uninterpreted experience, then ask a rock for its autobiography. That's just sort of a joke here, but it's like, you know, any experience requires consciousness. And that seems to be some way of filtering or interpreting whatever it is that the world is um, objectively. Whatever it is behind our experiences that's really there. And to Whitehead, that's this process. All right, then he says, each actual occasion, so you can just imagine, you don't have to, you don't have to get too deep into the uh, vocabulary. An actual occasion is just a, an experience or a component of experience. So let's read it like this. Each experience contributes to the circumstance of its origin, deepening its own peculiar individuality. Consciousness is only the last and greatest of such elements by which the individual obscures the external totality from which it originates and which it embodies. It has attained its individual depth of being by a selective emphasis limited to its own purpose. The task of philosophy is to recover the totality obscured by the selection All right, so when he says that each experience contributes to its origin, which deepen its own peculiar individuality, this is why, this is, you know, he's saying basically there's no experience, there's no two experiences alike. Experiences are like snowflakes, you know? And the reason is that they're all nested in the prior experiences that came before them that allowed this experience to happen. You know, like if the experience of, of you know, the sun... Uh, being formed and the planets uh, being being 
created because of the, the gravity and all that. If that experience didn't happen, then there would be no earth for me to exist on. And so I wouldn't be, be able to have any experiences on the earth. You can see what, what he means by this. Every experience is nested in the experiences that came before it. And so every new experience is colored by all these other experiences that came before it and how it, how it interacts with all of the other experiences that, that exist. You can imagine reality as this network of experiences that, you know, that is, that is beyond space and time, something like that. And it's this web that connects all experiences together. So it's like experiences are nested, like each experience is colored by the unique set of prior experiences that make it up or that gave rise to it. And then he says, consciousness is the latest and greatest of such elements. Um, and he says that it obscures the external totality from which we originate. And, and that we embody. And I think that is such a powerful thing to say. That consciousness obscures the fact that we're part of this oneness that we call the cosmos, that you might call God or the creative advance, that we're part of it. Not only are we part of it, we're, we're a representation of it. We embody it. We are an actual example of whatever this process is that the universe is. Another way of saying that is... Well, people have said this many times, many ways, that human beings are nothing but stardust. And that's another way of saying something similar. It's like we came from the stars. You know, it, we, there had to be this big bang and this cosmic set of circumstances for us to be here. And so what we are is a living manifestation of the star that created us. We're the self-aware universe, something like that. Or the way that that universe knows itself. That's another way it's been said. So we are, each, each of us individually, and each individual atom, and anything at all that you can point to in the world um, of experience, we originate from consciousness, and we embody consciousness. We originate from God, or process, whatever you want to call it, and we're an embodiment of God, or, or process. And each one of us is a little bit unique, just like every experience is a little bit unique. And yet we're all nested within this greater reality that we call process or that we call, you know, the cosmos. That brings me to the next section, which is called philosophy and religion. Whitehead says, philosophy attains its chief importance by fusing religion and science into one rational scheme of thought. Religion should connect the rational generalities of philosophy with the emotions and purposes springing out of existence. Religion is the translation of general ideas into particular thoughts, emotions, and purposes. Philosophy finds religion and modifies it. And conversely, religion is among the data of experience which philosophy must weave into its own scheme. Religion is an ultimate craving to infuse into emotion that non-temporal generality which primarily belongs to conceptual thought alone. Let me read that one again. Religion is an, is an ultimate craving to infuse into emotion that non-temporal generality which primarily belongs to thought alone. 
So non-temporal generality, which applies to thought, that's something like consciousness. You know, it, it's never born and never dies. It's, it's beyond time. It's very much like God in that way. As long as there are living beings, there will be sentience. So sentience is not subject to space and time, right? So we want to take this, we want to take this God-like part of us and, and fuse that with our emotion, something like the force that creates the cosmos and the power within us that evaluates the cosmos. That's, that's something like our emotion. And so there's something like that um, that, uh, that religion is trying to do. And it's very much like what he says philosophy is trying to do, to unite science and religion. And religion is trying to unite this sort of idea of God with, with, our, with the product, product of our consciousness, with our, with our emotion primarily. And that has to do with what Whitehead says, um, our particular thoughts, emotions, and purposes. It's figuring out what to do with the facts of the world. What do they mean? And then he says, scientific interest is only a variant form of religious interest. Any survey of the scientific devotion to truth as an ideal will confirm this statement. There is, however, a grave divergence between science and religion. All right, so before I jump into that, I just want to uh, focus on this point again because this is pretty interesting. He calls, he calls science a, um, a form of religion. And he said, if you don't believe me, just ask any scientist about truth. They're going to say that truth is the ultimate ideal. For scientists, truth is the absolute. Truth is God to a scientist. And their devotion to truth will confirm that, that, it, that science is a religious enterprise. And I think that is hard to argue with. You know, truth is something that is a transcendent idea. It's a, it's a very abstract idea. It's very, it's very similar to the idea of God. But he says there's a grave difference between science and religion. He says religion is centered upon the harmony of rational thought with reaction to the percepta from which experience originates. Okay, percepta is just objects of perception, but um, but one of the things Jordan Peterson tells you about objects of perception is that they come along with um, emotion and motivation. So something that you experience is going to often have a feeling, a way it feels. Maybe maybe that's some sort of form of emotion, um, but also a motivation. It, it maybe it, it causes you to think a certain way or it causes you to act a certain way. That's what you know. That's what perception does. You know, a perception of uh, uh, a plate of food while you're hungry is going to cause you to, you know, to act a certain way, right? It's going to cause you to eat that food. Then he says, science is concerned with the harmony of rational thought with the percepta themselves. So let me read this again. Religion is centered upon the harmony of rational thought with reaction to the percepta. Science is concerned with the harmony of rational thought with the percepta themselves, so science is focused on the objects of experience, and um, religion is focused on how the objects of experience make you feel and cause you to act. If that makes sense, it's like uh, it's like uh, Jordan Peterson will make this distinction when he says there's a difference between what something is and what it means, and what it means is oftentimes more important than what it is. So, if the science was examining a snake. They're going to tell you what kind of creature it is, how it moves, what it's made up of, what it eats. They're going to tell you what a snake is. 
However, if you are walking down a path and you see a snake, you're going to jump away from it before you've quite even registered that it's a snake. Certainly before you know what kind of snake it is or what it's made of, because what it means is danger. And that's far more important than what it eats and what it's made up of and how it moves and, you know, that it lays eggs, all that sort of stuff. Science is concerned with what things are. Religion is concerned with what they mean. Something like that. That's what Whitehead is saying. Then he says, when science deals with emotions, the emotions in question are percepta and not immediate passions. And this is key. If a scientist is studying emotions, they're going to tell you about chemicals in your brain and receptors and electrical contactivity in your nervous system. They can tell you about all that sort of stuff. Because to them, an emotion is an object of perception. But Whitehead is saying, no, it's not. At least it's not only an object of perception. It's also an immediate passion. It's an experience. It's not just what it seems to be. And he says, religion deals with the formation of the experiencing subject, whereas science deals with the objects, which are the data in this experience. Religion deals with the formation of the experiencing subject, where science deals only with the objects that they're experiencing. Which, which do you think is more important? And if you're going to leave one of them out, which one do you think is better to leave out? How we understand ourselves as experiencing subjects or the objects that we're experiencing? It seems like the thing that does the experiencing may be more important than what's being experienced. To me, the fact that experience is possible seems to be the deepest mystery, not the fact that there are things to experience. All right, Whitehead says, the conclusion of this discussion is first, that breadth of thought reacting with experience stands out as the ultimate claim of existence. Secondly, that the development of self-justifying thoughts have been achieved by the process of generalizing and by renewed comparison with the direct experience to which it should apply. Okay, so he says the conclusion of this discussion is first, that the breadth of thought reacting with experience, so thought and experience, stands out as the ultimate claim of existence. So to know that something is real, to know that it exists, um, is to be able to justify or, or validate or verify that they have thoughts and experience. Again, how else do we know what's real beyond our experience and the thoughts that our experience generate? And then again, when we have these thoughts we, uh, you know, that we can generalize, then we, we have to compare them again to the world. So it's like we abstract from particulars to find universals and then to understand ourselves to be an embodiment of that same universal. It's, it it helped. That's how you can begin to see yourself the way Whitehead sees sees himself in reality. We look at the world, we 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 you know observe, and we can find patterns in the world, and those are things that we call universals. Those are things that are like essences. They're true. Of, they're true of lots of things, and so they tell us something more fundamental about the world and how it and how it's made up and how it exists. We have this common thread that we find these universals that we see everywhere. 
So let's focus on those. And once we learn whatever we can from those, then we come back to ourselves and realize that we are personally an embodiment of those same universals that we're seeing in the world elsewhere. That's how we know that we are part of this system in more in a more intimate way than we could ever have conceived. We're part of what creates the system more intimately than we could possibly could have conceived. We're part of the process that is reality and is God and is being. It's amazing. All right, he says, we do not trust any recasting of scientific theory depending upon a single experiment unrepeated. The ultimate test is always widespread recurrent experience. And the more general the rationalistic scheme, the more important is the final appeal. So what he's saying here is just as we repeat experiments in a scientific um, setting to give credence to the results of the experiment, we're going to repeat it, right, to make sure that we're consistently getting those results before we, uh, before we are confident that it's true. He said just like that, experience in the world is like that. All this experience that's going on. Um, generalized in many instances or modes, you know, that, that's what makes things seem different from one another because, again, they're experiences that are nested in or related to different, you know, a different set of other experiences. Um, but ha- having these experiences repeated over and over that allows us to pull some abstraction from it, that's just like the scientific method of repeating an experiment. If you see something in different levels of analysis, if you see some truth that's present in different areas that are unrelated, that's like repeating the experiment and getting the same results. You can see that there's justification for believing whatever it is you're supposing. And in this case, Whitehead is supposing some pretty interesting, <laughs> some pretty interesting things, right? He says, by providing the generic notions... Philosophy should make it easier to conceive the infinite variety of specific instances which rest unrealized in the womb of nature. Oh man, that's a good one. Philosophy should make it easier to conceive the infinite variety of specific instances which rest unrealized in the womb of nature. So again, you start, if you can start with a generality and you can say, um, you know, here's an atom. And then you can show how, how the atoms can be used to make all sorts of, of other things, very different seeming things. And you can see that the abstraction, the pattern that's common among all of the things made of matter is this abstraction that we call an atom. So we see abstract patterns generalized. We understand that yet more forms or modes of experiencing the same pattern are possible and yet to be manifest. So there might be an infinite amount of being, of, of more representations of these, of these abstract generalities, these archetypes, these, um, you know, uh, uh, potentials. And that, that process of continually manifesting new and novel um, re- representations, man- embodiments of these, um, abstractions. This is something like a process, and this is what Whitehead is called, you know, is calling process philosophy. You've got what I perceive as consciousness on one side in the form of God or the creative advance or potentiality. 
Then you have consciousness on the other side, which takes the form of its representations. That's the cosmos. That's consciousness and everything in it. And there's some, some relationship. There's some interaction back and forth between these two parts of the one thing, the one substance. And this process that generates experience and reality, that's the most fundamental abstraction. That's the most real thing, the process. And that brings me to my conclusion. We have only scratched the surface here as to Whitehead's system of metaphysics. He has mostly justified his attempts to propose a better model of reality and more complete explanation for experience than is entirely speculative, or more plainly, creatively invented. We will get deeper into the weeds in future episodes, but for now, we can at least highlight the novel ideas that permeate Whitehead's ontology. We can point to his agreement with Spinoza to begin with, that there are no logical reasons to suppose that reality is composed of more than one substance. Now, following Occam's razor, we move from the simplest explanation to the point where Spinoza and Whitehead begin to diverge. Whitehead reasons that the one substance must be dynamic, moving, and transforming, just as the world of our experience is in a constant state of transformation. The coherence with reality here provides the foundation for pushing forward. We now come to the question of why the one substance should be dynamic at all. To explain this, Whitehead points back to the nature of experience itself. The transformation of experience seems to require interaction with something existing behind our experiences. This interaction constitutes a process perhaps one of feedback, as we see in nature. The process which exists between the absolute and individual being is a process of mutual transformation. Experience of the absolute transforms being, but strangely for Whitehead, the experience of being also transforms the absolute. As Whitehead told us, the actualities of the world obtain representation in the divine nature, and that such representations evolve in its relationship to the evolving world. And so we can see how a process evolves from experience, which requires God and creation acting upon one another. And in a mystical twist, Whitehead reminds us that the highest abstraction the most applicable generalization about reality is that we are all part of process. Quote, the process is nothing else than the experiencing subject itself. Unquote. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work thinking it's hard and full of uncertainties but i'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze see what i did there let's find out together in the next episode